All right, we have, uh, what have we been doing lately? The last few weeks we've been talking a lot about um, just the nature of the journey and trying to zero in on the path, but also the mindset and the attitude that is critical, even prerequisite, to being able to take this journey in the first place. Now Jesus is really clear about that. If you want to follow me, he says, there are things that you need to do. And of course, it's all shrouded in in metaphorical language because how else can you put it? Anything that that, uh, is smacking of of the divine, of the infinite, has to be clothed in metaphorical language. So to pick up his cross and follow him is is a way. To be willing to sell everything you have and give it to the poor is a way of trying to put this Mindset, this, this way of approaching life without which there is no way to follow Jesus. It just cannot be done. Because Jesus' way is a deep dive down into humility. It's a deep dive down into the complete loss of sense of self, at least at times, that allows us to experience this unity that is truly at the core of everything that is. And if we're going to experience that unity, we can't do it. You know, you know like the Terminator movies? You know, you, you can't come through with anything, clothing, um, weaponry. You've got be, to go in completely as you were born. It's kind of like that. You know, we, we have to just divest ourselves of all this stuff before we can go through this, this, this narrow gate that Jesus is talking about. It just doesn't work any other way. So how do we do that? What's, what's the... the Steps. What's the formula? What's the way of actually going through a process of being able to divest ourselves of the things that we need to get shut of in order to be able to really follow Jesus? So that's kind of where we've been going. And I wanted to take another look at this. It's almost like you can't take enough looks at this because there's so many different ways to look at this. And you find Jesus doing the same thing. Well, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this. And it's kind of like that. And he's grasping about, trying to find a way to be able to bring home in everyone's mind, as many minds as possible, as many hearts as possible, what this thing really looks like, what it's all about. I ran across an article that was talking about a, a pastor wrote this article, someone that I'm, I'm really impressed with, have a lot of respect for. Uh, he's someone who's kind of a you know, twin brother of a different mother in, in many respects. His name is Brian Zand, and he's out in Missouri. But uh, he was talking about a sea change that went along in his life. And you all familiar with that phrase, sea change? It's a fundamental change of everything. It comes from Shakespeare. So if you, all you Shakespeare fans, go read The Tempest and you'll find it in there. But it's, it's a fundamental change that changes everything, every aspect of your life, profoundly from top to bottom. So he's re, he writes, at the age of 45, I woke up and asked, how did I get here? <laughs> Ever done that? It's just like, how did I get here? I think part of what happened then in 2004, so this was, what, 13 years ago? In 2004, I want is that I wanted to become myself before it was too late. I recognized if I weren't careful, I would end up being a religious entrepreneur focused on marketing, client acquisition, and customer satisfaction. I reached a point where I was profoundly disillusioned with the kind of Christianity I was experiencing and, as a senior pastor, participating in and reproducing. Wow. Now, this is a guy who had a big church, what we probably call a mega church in Missouri. 
He wakes up at age 45 and says, what the heck? It's like I woke up one morning and realized I got on the wrong bus. For all of the energy in our church, it didn't seem very revolutionary. It seemed like American culture with a Jesus fish slapped on it. That's pretty... It's a wake-up call, right? Having been on the wrong path, it just sort of sneaks up on you sometimes, especially if you're being successful at what you're doing. You start doing something, it's working, and before you know it, it's, it's institutionalized. It's, it's part of who you are. And then you, all of a sudden you realize, man, you know, like chaos theory, small changes in input make huge changes in output. It's like you just, a little bit of deviation here, and then without even thinking about it, man, you're way out here someplace. How did I get here? I must have gotten on the wrong bus. And so this is what he's trying to express, and I think we can all say we probably can resonate with that. We can resemble that remark. I know that, that I can. And this is something that we're struggling with right now. As we realize that we need to get the word out about the effect, and we're working with a marketing team to do that with us, it's a constant battle, you know, between becoming a religious entrepreneur and worried about client acquisition and continuing to do what we do, but with some sort of balance, trying to tend to those small changes in input before we go. Now, he says, I think we're, we are too, uh, let me start again. I think we are far too narrow in our understanding of repentance. The word from the French means to think. I was seriously ready to rethink a lot of things. I repented, he says. Okay, so he repented. Now, for us, repentance is about regret, right? Repentance is about contrition. Repentance is about feeling sorry for our sins. It's about guilt. It's about shame. It's about remorse. Repentance has all those elements to us. It's about really feeling bad about sinning and then realizing that we have to do something about it, of course. Then the next step is to stop the sinning. Start obeying. Get really legal about it. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Have you ever heard that one before? Kind of like that. I see a few people who are hearing that for the first time. You heard it here first. It all becomes a laundry list of things that we can't do. It all becomes this restriction. It becomes things that we have to do in order to repent, in order to get back into God's good graces. This is the way that we think about repentance. It has that kind of negative, restrictive quality to it. Now, Zahn said that repentance comes from the French to think, that he needed to rethink. I looked up the etymology and I couldn't find that, so I don't know what uh, dictionary he's coming from. But then he says that we are far too narrow in our view of repentance. And there he's spot on. Because repentance is a central theme of the entire Bible. It's used over 106 times in the Bible. And it's obviously a central theme of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' first recorded remarks, first recorded sermon, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark, has to do with repentance. Let's take a look. Upstairs, I think, uh, Brandon is going to get that up there, but also in your handouts, Mark 1, starting at verse 14. Now after John, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, that's in the NASB. And most of your English translations will have that particular translation, you know, that the kingdom is at hand. And that's basically what the Greek word standing behind the English word is saying. But if you move to the Aramaic word, the word that Jesus would have originally uttered that stands behind the Greek word, what you find out is that that word that Jesus used means it's already arrived. It's here. It's now. The time is fulfilled. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Take a look at the way that Eugene Peterson translates the same passage in the message. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the message of God. Time's up. The kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. That's good. The message, the good news for the gospel. Two critical words in there that we have to take a look at if we're really going to understand this fullness of Jesus' sermon. And it's just two lines here. But you could make a lifetime out of just those two lines if we understand what repent means and we understand what belief means. And our English word does come from the French for repent. We'll start with repent. But it goes in a little bit different direction, at least in the study that I did. Repentir is uh, the French word that we get repent from, which comes in turn from the Latin. And re here doesn't necessarily mean to repeat or to do again. It's an intensive prefix, and so it just is adding intensity to this Latin word pentire, which means to regret, which comes from another Latin word, poenitire, which means to make sorry, which comes from poena, which means punishment. So you can see what's happening in the Latin here. It's moving in a legal direction. Poena is punishment. Poenitire is to make sorry because of the punishment, right? Obviously. And then penitire is the regret that we feel on top of everything else, the guilt and the shame that we feel. So that's from the French through the Latin. And it translates almost whole cloth into our culture. That's the way that we feel about repentance. But let's take a step back to the Greek that stands behind the Latin. Metanoio, if you've ever heard that word before, metanoio, means to repent. It means to have remorse. It means to be converted, though. It means to turn about, to change directions. And this is two Greek words that have been kind of stuck together. Meta which means with, among, or in the vicinity of, kind of one of those all-purpose prepositions. And noyo, which means to grasp, to comprehend, to perceive, understand, to think over. Now here's where Brian Zand is getting that idea of to think. It's a change of mind. It's a change of life direction, is what metanoio is talking about. But now let's take one more step back into the Hebrew And this, to me, is where the rubber meets the road, and it just gets so interesting. There are two words that that are used in Hebrew that are translated as repent or repentance in the Bible. And the first one is naham. Naham literally means to sigh. I love that. It means to sigh. And by extension, it means to lament. It means to grieve. It means to be sorry. And there's a second Hebrew word, shub. And shub 
means to turn back to the starting point, to retreat, or simply to go back home. Now, those two words are not put together. They're not used in conjunction with each other. They're used separately in separate verses and separate passages of Scripture. And so sometimes the focus is on the the sigh, the lament, the grieving, the being sorry. And sometimes the focus is on turning around and going back home, going back to the starting point. And so if we are to take this sermon of Jesus in Mark 1, at Mark 1.15, And I'm going to paraphrase it loosely. Using these words, it would come out something like this. The waiting is over. The reign of God's unity, the reality of God's unity is here and it's now. If you're on another path, grieve your loss. Trust in this good news and change your mind and turn homeward. How's that change things? The waiting is over. The reality of God's unity is here and now. If you're on another path, grieve your loss. Trust in this good news that I'm telling you right now. Change your mind. Renew your mind. And go home again. How's that work? How can we do this? It sounds great when I say it. And you're taking my word for it that all this stuff is true. You could look it up. But how does this work in our lives? How do we move forward? I'll tell you what, if we're only fearing punishment, if we stop at the Latin understanding, if we're just fearing, fearing punishment, if we're obeying out of fear, it doesn't work at all. You're not going to get anywhere on Jesus' way if that is the motivation for your repentance. You cannot enter, you cannot realize kingdom through fear. They're at odds with one another. Perfect love casts out fear. The kingdom is the experience, the expression of, the awareness of perfect love here and now. If your motive is fear-based to try to get there, you're already defeated before you start. Now, Paul hits this head-on in 2 Corinthians. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians. That'll be chapter 7, starting at verse 8. First, in the NASB, and I, for, I forgot or neglected to tag these two, but we're going to do them both, one in NASB, which is the New American Standard, and then in the message, which is um, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. So Second Corinthians 7, 8 to 12. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. Here's Paul, schizo Paul, you know, kind of. But, but he has a point here. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now let's read that again now in the message and see if it gets clearer. I know that I distressed you greatly with my letter. I felt, although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel at all bad about now that I see how it turned out. The letter upsets you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad. Not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from Him. And the result was all gain. No loss. Now, like I've said before a million times, when we're reading the epistles, we're reading someone else's mail. 
When we're reading the epistles, we're getting the answer, but not the question. There's a reason that letters were always written in the ancient world, because they were so expensive and so difficult to deliver, and so on and so forth. So what's the context? What was the distress that Paul gave to the people of Corinth? What's the letter that he's referring to? What did he do that he felt some regret for and then no regret and so on and so forth? Well, now we've got to get the backstory, I And mean, we have to understand that the letter that he's referring to that he already wrote is 1 Corinthians, of course. We're in 2 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians is a letter of correction. He is really calling this church body to task. It's harsh at times what he has to say to them. And so the idea is what is going on? And let's take a look at that. So then I think it'll make, it a lot, make a lot more sense when we continue with the rest of the passage. One of the things that was happening, that factions were forming in the church. Boy, is this you know, timeless or what? There was a, a teacher that came along, you know, someone who probably came up through the ranks. Now that Paul has established a church and now has left, here comes this charismatic teacher. His name was Apollos. And, um, and he is teaching and he's undermining Paul's authority at the same time. He's pitting one group against another. Have you ever seen this in the church before? Oh my gosh, it happens over and over and over again. These factions form, everybody's fighting. They say, hey, I'm following Paul. No, I'm following Apollos. No, I'm following Cephas. I follow Christ. And, and Paul, uh, Paul is saying, what, is, is Christ divided? How in the world can Christ be divided into all these factions? Right? So he's calling the task about the fact that they allowed themselves to be led into this kind of state where they're all at odds with each other. Secondly, there was a case of incest that obviously was common knowledge within their body because he heard about it wherever the heck he was. Most scholars feel he was in Ephesus when he was writing this letter to Corinth. And he heard about it all the way from there, that this man in their body had committed this or was continuing to commit this act and nobody was doing anything about it. It's possible that these factions, some of the, the, uh, the uh, teachers either approved tacitly or, or implied that there was nothing wrong with it because in Greek culture, especially in Corinth at the time, which is a pretty dissolute city, um, it probably wouldn't have raised eyebrows. But Paul is saying this is intolerable, this is unacceptable in our community and you need to do something about it. Third, the Corinthians have become litigious. They were suing each other about every little thing that went on. And they were going to the secular courts in order to do it. Instead of handling their affairs within their own body, between themselves, as Jesus had told us to do. Remember? If you're on your way to court to to sue somebody, stop. Work it out before you get there. And so they were sue happy and they were going all over the place and they were going to these secular courts instead of trying to work it out within. They had also returned to their indulgent ways the ways of of, of a busy and wealthy port city that Corinth was. And so there was drinking and there was debauchery and there was all sorts of things going on. And and Paul is saying, what are you guys doing? You know, this isn't what we talked about. This is where we started. Small changes in input yield huge changes in output. And then he goes on to add corrections and to start to instruct them about marriage, about eating foods that were sacrificed to idols, about speaking in tongues, and a whole host of other things. Now, some of this is merely instructional. Others of it is really pretty harsh. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see what he's talking about. He slammed them, slammed them up against the wall. And he knew that he hurt them, but he knew that he'd do it again if he had to, because there was a point to it. 
sorrow. He slammed him. Let's read the rest of this passage and see how he handles it. So starting at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's the target line right there for our purposes today. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be, to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the state of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Okay? Let's, let's read Eugene's version of it, see if it makes it clearer. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. My primary concern was not for the one who did the wrong or even the one wronged, but for you, that you would realize and act upon the deep, deep ties between us before God. So look what Paul is doing. He's greatly expanding this notion of repentance. Repentance without regret. That's the key. If it is only the regret, it is only, if it's only the fear of punishment that drives us to change our ways, nothing happens interiorly. We do not get on this way of Jesus. We're not going to go where Jesus is trying to lead us. And so this sorrow according to the will of God is the key. Because sorrow according to the will of God brings willingness to change. And the willingness brings self-awareness, brings presence to who we are in this moment, the nature of our relationships with everyone, the nature of our relationship with unseen spirit. And the present brings us to the Father. Do you see how that works? The sorrow brings a willingness to change. The willingness brings a self-awareness and the presence. And the self-awareness and the presence brings us to the Father Exactly the definition of kingdom that Jesus is trying to get across to us. This is repentance without regret. By definition, to be in the presence of God is to be without regret. I often hear people talking about, you know, the the great white throne judgment, the last judgment when we all stand before God and we will be so ashamed at the life we've led. We're standing in the presence of perfect love. What do you think you're going to feel? Perfect love. Regret? I don't think so. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. This good news that he's trying to get us to trust, it's got to change us 180 degrees around what we normally think. 
Why does it all have to start with sorrow, though? Why does it all have to start with pain? What is it about sorrow and pain that motivates us, that gets us on this path? I found an article in Psychology Today, of all places. So this is not religious at all, but I thought it was so apropos to what we're talking about. The name of the article is The High Price of Self-Awareness. Do you love that? The High Price of Self-Awareness. Do the benefits of discovery outweigh the pain? (laughs) And she writes, as a proponent of emotional intelligence. Have you heard that one before? Emotional intelligence. As a proponent of emotional intelligence, I'm often asked to explain this complex and sometimes elusive concept. Well, I had to look it up from another article so that I could at least figure out what they're talking about. I mean, sort of in context, you can figure it out. Emotional intelligence is the ability to identify and manage your own emotions and the emotions of others. It is generally said to include three skills, emotional awareness, the ability to harness emotions and apply them to tasks like thinking and problem solving, and third, the ability to manage emotions, which includes regulating your own emotions and cheering up or calming down other people. Not bad. Emotional intelligence. All right? Obviously, anybody who's able to be emotionally intelligent first has to be self-aware, has to be present. You can't do this stuff if you're not right in the center of the moment, aware of everything that's going on, aware of all the people, reading them, being present to them, seeing how you're affecting them. If you can't do that, you can't be emotionally intelligent. If you think about the the times that you've really blown it, where you've really been out there emotionally, you weren't present. You were inside that pain. And that pain was huge. But it didn't let you break through. It didn't let you connect Simplifying emotional intelligence is a challenge, to be sure, but it helps to point out that self-awareness is the cornerstone of emotional intelligence. This is a deceptively simple explanation. In truth, the complexities underlying self-awareness are equally vast. Here's why. Psychological studies show that most of us believe ourselves to be above average in most skill sets. Surprise! (laughs) We think we're above average, right? We believe we perform better, are better predictors of success, and are better at deciphering the truth when compared with others. Clearly, we can't all be right. We will go to amazing lengths to protect our egos. It's this, it's them, not me phenomenon, is what Cordelia Find, a psychologist at the Australian National University, calls our vain brain. Okay? It's them, not me. Always pointing outward. What does Brene Brown say? She said about blame. She says it's a way of distilling pain, dispensing pain, dissipating pain, I think is the way she put it. I knew it was a D word. Same thing. Blame, dissipating the pain, taking it out there, putting it on somebody else. We misinterpret our excess as being a direct result of our behaviors, not something we've accomplished in spite of certain less-than-ideal traits. And finally, the truth hurts, as pointed out in a Harvard Business Review article entitled Non-Conscious Leadership. One, confronting our own non-conscious processes is painful and difficult. We keep things in our unconscious mind for a reason, and those reasons usually aren't pretty. Given the high price of genuine self-knowledge, the benefits don't seem substantial enough to warrant the pain. 
the price of confronting our covert selves, covert selves, unconscious selves, the things that we keep down there because we don't want to deal with them. We don't want to do our fourth step. Let's face it. We don't want to have to list all that stuff, right? We don't want to have to deal with our limitations, our character defects. The price of confronting our covert selves is unlikely to be much reduced, but the cost of willful ignorance is actually much higher than we admit. If we could get clear about the true price of how our non-conscious selves hijack our energies, we might have more reason to confront our internal dynamics. In other words, we need a lot of convincing to actually look at ourselves because we don't want to do it. We don't want to go through that pain. We don't want to have to vomit up all that stuff because it's going to hurt so much. We don't want to look at that ugly subconscious it's just like we've been doing this Enneagram class for the last couple of months. The Enneagram forces you to look at the dark side, the shadow side. That's its strength. That's its usefulness. It's not just patting you on the back for the good things you do. It's also showing you the other side. This pain that we feel, this pain according to God's will that Paul is talking about, is the only motivator powerful enough to overcome that fear. We need that pain to overcome. There has to be some sort of cost-benefit in our minds or we won't go there until the pain gets high enough that we finally see that it's in our self, our best interest, self-interest, to now go through this other pain. We're not going to do it. That's why Paul says, Repentance without regret is realizing that the pain of the regret, the grieving that you go through, is the motivator that finally moves you to a whole new paradigm. Not just trying to avoid punishment, but actually moving into a new place. There's a great saying in the program, we progress at the pace of pain. We progress at the pace of pain. Pain is what motivates us. Pain is what moves us. And so this repentance is a process. It's a movement toward the awareness and presence that is kingdom, that is God's unity. And so, if you look at repentance this way, it breaks down into a kind of a three-step, I hate to call it a formula, a, a three-step method that Jesus is giving us that the culture has kind of imbued into this word that he's using for this purpose. Remember Naham, the sigh? I love that. The pain, the wounding, the sigh, the grieving, the sense of loss must be great enough to motivate us to move forward. It must be more than just the fear of punishment because that fear will only take us as far as obedience and obedience is never far enough. It will never take us to full transformation, awareness, and presence. The second step, the metanoio, right? The thinking again. The willingness to challenge our current beliefs, to challenge our thought patterns, to say that there are no sacred cows here. Everything is on the table. I'm going to look at everything and see whether it's true, whether it's still true, whether it's leading me where I really want to go or not to renew the mind, to renew the worldview, to admit that you have a worldview, that you're not seeing reality directly, that you're seeing it through the filter of your worldview and question the worldview. How hard is that? 
The worldview is a the perfect prison because it just looks like the ground that we stand on and the air that we breathe. How do we question that? When the pain is great enough, we will find the way, the means. We can use the scriptures correctly to see how Jesus uses the metaphors, the, the stories, the figures of speech to get us to a place where we can do exactly that. We can part that curtain and look out and see another there out there. The metanoia will make us ready to accept and move toward radical change in our lives that isn't possible until the mind renews, until we see a new paradigm, we see a new there out there. And then, third, the shub, right? The turning homeward. Like the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He's the perfect example of this, isn't he? He asks his father for the money that he was due. He takes it and he leaves and he goes to a far country. And it's not until the pain gets to this point in his life that he's actually sleeping and eating with the pigs, which is the lowest that a Jew can possibly go in an unclean state. That pain motivates him to turn and go back home again, trusting that everything will be well with his father, even though what he did literally deserved death in that culture. He trusts that even his father's hired hands are living better than he is. He might as well go back home. That's the trust factor. The pain, the wounding, is the motivator to finally look at what needs to be looked at internally, deal with all that stuff, and set a new paradigm so that we can simply turn homeward. This is what repentance really is. It's not a word. It's not an act of contrition. It's a process through this whole way of Jesus. It's a rite of passage. It's a hero's journey in and of itself if we look at it correctly. Now, what did the grief that Brian Zant, the pastor that we started with, what did his grief over becoming a commercial pastor motivate him to do? First of all, to rethink everything. He went through this process we're talking about. He looked at everything he was doing, everything his church was doing, and then he started to act accordingly. Even if it was risky, and of course it's risky. You have something that's working, you have something that's built, and suddenly you're going to change it? Do you know how risky that is? Especially if your livelihood is dependent upon it? Let me just read some of the things that he went through so you can see what repentance caused in his life. He writes, When we talk about God, the ultimate transcendence, we have no recourse available than to use metaphor. Something we were just talking about. If you literalize a metaphor, you create an idol. That is something I couldn't have said earlier in my life. He had to take a look at the very language of scripture, the language of religion, the language of spirituality, and start to reform that. Talk about ground level stuff that he needed to do in order to see a path that he needed to turn homeward toward. The body of Christ is expressed in a number of eclectic streams of expression. And by eclectic, I mean... I have been able to experience the diverse body of Christ and find nothing but nourishment and enrichment. In other words, he had to be willing to start looking for truth where it actually appeared and not just where he expected it to be. He had to open himself up to new streams of expression and weigh them before they were just bouncing off his force field. 
because he knew what was right and he knew what worked. Now he had to be open again. He had to allow that to do its work in him. He writes, meditation on the cross is not a path to success in the American way of thinking. Success is determined outwardly, primarily through numbers, rather than being properly formed. I often replace the word lead with form. The cross became that which I wanted to be formed into. Could my posture in this world be a more crucified life rather than a consuming one? It sounds very ambitious and heroic, but I don't mean it like that. Individualism is a particular pathology in the American church. The Desert Fathers had a saying, one Christian is no Christian. Is that beautiful? One Christian is no Christian. When Jesus talks about salvation, he talks about the kingdom of God. Salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. I can't work out my salvation alone. I do that with other people in an open and vulnerable community. Wow. What do you think his fellow evangelicals are saying about that? Often pastors say to me, I admire your courage. I understand the compliment, but what I want to tell them is that I was terrified every moment. I asked myself, will I lose my life's work? And would I be willing to do that? Those questions took me back to the cross. I have become more self-aware through contemplative and liturgical prayers. I began to realize that I shouldn't leave all the praying to myself. I needed to trust liturgies of prayer far wiser than mine. Those kinds of prayers form me by asking, do you want to continue to be that way? All real change requires awareness. Being self-aware is when you come to see yourself as self-absorbed. The self-absorbed person is never self-aware. I am not as driven or as ambitious as I used to be. I don't evaluate success by the American metrics of numbers and offerings. I see myself much more pastoral. I am not much of a religious CEO, that's for sure. I am trying to serve as a spiritual director. This is huge stuff. This is foundational stuff. This goes right to the absolute core. If you believe what he's saying, if he believed what he was saying, he needed to reevaluate everything that he was doing, all the policies, the practices of the church, to see whether they are now conforming with this new reality that he had experienced with his father. That's risky. That's terrifying. But it's terrifying for each one of us. Just because he's a pastor in a church doesn't mean that the process isn't working in every single one of our lives. What about your life right now? Is there a level of grief? Is there a level of a sense of loss? Is there a level of pain? Some deep knowing that the path you're on is not the optimal one, the path that you're on is not taking you where you really want to go, that you keep somehow banging your head against the wall, that relationships keep failing or being compromised, that you never have a sense of meaning and purpose, a sense of fulfillment in what you do, that the truth is always out there someplace, but it never just comes home to land and to roost and to be a part of who you are. How much pain is it going to take before you're willing to go through this process, to see repentance for what it really is, to see the pain as the motivator 
to finally allow you to look at the difficult things, the things that you have been avoiding for so long, and then to simply turn and go home. This is the question that we need to ask ourselves. How much pain is enough? Hopefully, this level right now. Because we don't have to keep sinking into deeper and deeper pain if we're allowing to let the pain that we have be enough. And seeing it as the pain that Paul is talking about, that comes from the accordance with the will of God, is exactly what we need to kickstart the process in our lives. Let it be. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, it seems that every time I dig into your word, it just amazes me. The smallest line, the smallest verse or description just opens up these treasure troves. Thank you for the depth. Thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for the layers of meaning that are in your word. Help us to use it in a way that will take us where we really need to go with you. Help us to use it in a way to reduce the sense of fear and increase our trust that things are going to be okay, even when they're so risky, even when we're digging up our lives and moving things around. Father, thank you for never leaving or forsaking us and being with us every step of the way. Help us once again to see this in a new way so that we can do everything that we need to do to break through to the freedom that you've promised us. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.